Well, good morning, church. Good morning, visitor, channel surfer, whoever you might be. We are glad that you have joined us for our online service today. I'd like to direct your attention, if you have gotten to this video through our email, I'd like to direct your attention to a link that is on the email. If you haven't seen it and even viewed it already, uh, our leadership has been working together to put together our reopening plan. And so Pastor Mark is going through some of those in uh, a little bit of detail. I'd like to invite you to view that video and be prepared and, and know uh, what is to come for our church as it stands today. We understand we still are living in very uncertain times as it relates to this coronavirus and how that applies to our, our government and our living situations. But uh, where we are at today, this information is accurate, and we will just trust the Lord to continue to lead us as we move forward, so I invite you to do that. I know some of you are probably going to just push pause right now and go right to that. Can I invite you, if you do that, come back and uh, view the service, get your Bibles out, and be prepared to uh, feed on the spiritual nourishment that God has for us through Pastor Mark and the reading of his word today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today, for this time that we have to focus our minds, focus our hearts on you and the truths that you would have to communicate to us this day. Pray for Pastor Mark as he comes to share your word, that you give him the words to say, and that uh, you would help us as we uh, receive that, that we would have ears and hearts that are ready to receive your truths this day and to apply those to our hearts and to our lives so that we can conform more to the likeness of your Son. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. As you're going, uh, let me just uh, share with you a little bit of church history here. On April 14th, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way to the Diet of Worms. Sounds kind of funny. Uh, that word diet means assembly or, or meeting. Worms was a city in um, Germany, about an hour kind of southwest of Frankfurt. Um, Luther had been summoned by the Roman emperor. Uh, the emperor had forbidden, had already forbidden the sales of, uh, of Luther's books and ordered them to be seized. Uh, Luther's life was in great danger. He had uh, a friend, a, a devout friend, a, a confidant. His name was George. And uh, George had sent word through a special messenger to tell Luther not to come to Worms because of the suffering uh, that he may face, the same fate of John Huss, who was burned at the stake. Uh, Luther comforted his fearful friend, saying, Though Huss was burned... The truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. And then he sent his friend uh, the now famous message, I shall go to Worms, though there were as many devils as tiles on the roofs. Well, Luther did go. And days later, before a crowded hall and the emperor seated before him, Martin Luther debated Johann Eck who was the spokesman uh, for the emperor. X said, Martin, how can you assume 
that you are the only one to understand the sense of Scripture? Would you put your judgment above so many famous men and claim that you know more than they all? You have no right to call into question the most holy Orthodox faith instituted by Christ and the perfect lawgiver, proclaimed throughout the world by the apostles, sealed by the red blood of martyrs, confirmed by the sacred councils, defined by the church in which all our fathers believed until death and gave to us an inheritance, which now we are forbidden by the Pope and the emperor to discuss, lest there be no end of debate. So I ask you, Martin, answer candidly and without horns. Do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther said, Since your majesty and your lordship desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Uh, Luther's uh, commitment was not without consequence. He had already been excommunicated by the emperor a few months earlier, and now after this meeting was declared a heretic and an outlaw, which made him not only an enemy of the church, but also an enemy of the state. And yet, Luther, knowing that suffering was real, knowing and having experienced the suffering already, the opinion of men, the threat upon his life, he knew God's will, he knew God's word, and he would fulfill what God had called him to do. And the outcome we feel today, the outcome of Luther's ministry, the outcome of Luther's commitments impacts church history, impacted church history since, and even world history. As we come into chapter 21, we see another example of one who counted the cost of following God, knew God's will, and fulfilled God's will. Verses 1 through 17 will be our text for this morning. And here Luke details Paul's final stops before he ultimately reaches Jerusalem and completing his third missionary journey. Let's look at his journey in verse 1. This part of his journey begins in verse 1. And when they had parted from them, that's the Ephesians, uh, and set sail, they came <clears throat> by a straight course to cause, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having, spent, and having found a ship crossing to Punicia, they went aboard and set sail, verse 3, and we came, and when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for the ship was to unload its cargo. Uh, Paul had left the Ephesian elders in the end of chapter 20 and set sail here in verse 1, uh, ultimately, to get to Jerusalem by Pentecost. 
Uh, verse 1 says, when they had parted, or uh, this word parted means to be torn, right? We remember uh, how they, they, they that experience on uh, the end of chapter 20, when they were weeping and uh, embracing and uh, praying uh, together. There we see this, this closeness that they felt for one another. So from there, after a few stops, Paul and his company, uh, we see that pronoun we, which means Luke was uh, with them. Uh, they made a, 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 a voyage in from, if you looked at it on a map, uh, from Miletus, is where they uh, met with the Ephesians, uh, across the Mediterranean Sea, all, ultimately to get to Tyre, was some 400 miles. Uh, and they don't say much about that voyage other than that, that it happened. And they get to Tyre, and, and while they're there, they're waiting for, um, either waiting for the ship to unload and reload or waiting for another ship. We're not quite sure, but they're there for seven days, we find out in verse 4. And we also find out there in verse 4 that, that Paul didn't waste his time. He didn't just sit around uh, twiddling his thumbs. While, while he's in Tyre, he, he goes out, they go out, and they seek out disciples. We remember that Paul's mode of operation was when he came to a new city, he'd go to a synagogue. Well, uh, apparently it would seem that there wasn't a synagogue here, but not, nevertheless, they, they sought out disciples. We see Paul doing this in chapter 16. You remember when he, he finally meets up with, with Lydia. Uh, they, there was no synagogue there. They found the, the, the believers, the disciples, uh, by a riverside. So this is not new uh, for them, but they're in this, this city, they're in this place, and they're looking for uh, these disciples. Uh, this, this grouping of disciples, this uh, group of, of believers, uh, may have been um, formed due to the persecution that Paul and his uh, friends caused back in chapter 8 and 9. You'll remember when Paul was part of the persecution of Stephen. After that, uh, there was a scattering of, of disciples and of Christians out of Jerusalem. And in verse 11, it says that those who were, this is chapter 11, excuse me. In chapter 11, verse 19, it says that those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as, and it gives a list of, of regions. In one of those regions, we just read in verse 2, uh, Ponicia and in that region of Panicia is the city of Tyre. And so from the persecution that originated in verse chapters 8 and 9, uh, dealing with Paul, uh, believers were spread out. And ultimately, these, this group that Paul now comes back to uh, may have been scattered because of his, his role in the persecution. And as we said then, uh, that this this was uh, the way that God used persecution to spread the gospel around the world. Well, Paul was here in Tyre, and as he's there, keep reading verse 4. Uh, he sought out the, the disciples, stayed there for seven days, and through the Spirit, they, that's the disciples in Tyre, were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Now, we might remember last week we looked at chapter 20 and it seemed pretty clear that, that God was leading him. He was being constrained in the spirit to, to go. And now here through the spirit, uh, these people are telling them not to go. Uh, through the spirit though here does not indicate that the spirit was telling 
of these people that Paul should not go. Rather, the disciples were more likely told through the Spirit that Paul would suffer. And naturally, they would not want him to go. And they were urging him uh, and pressuring him not to, not to go. Uh, John Stott says it this way. Luke's account was a, a condensed way to say the warning was divine, but the urging was human. So through the Spirit, they, they found out what was going to happen to Paul. But it wasn't the, the Spirit warning him not to go. It was um, that the people urging him not to go. Uh, nevertheless, uh, verse 5, Paul did not heed the warning. And on he went, verse 5. And when day, the, our days were ended uh, there entire, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with their wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. When we went on, um, then we went on the to board the ship, and they returned home. So after seven days, Paul and company depart. And as they are departing, they are accompanied by these disciples from uh, from Tyre, uh, these newfound Christian friends. Uh, it only took a week, and they have this friendship, and they're accompany. Uh, they, they, they accompany Paul and his uh, group uh, to, the, to the boat, uh, to the ship. And there, uh, before they get on the boat, they say their, uh, their goodbyes. There's a, there's a value here. There's a beauty here in Christian friendship. Right? Even just this short time, we see how these friendships are being formed. These relationships are growing because of the bond that is in Christ. One, also, one other note, uh, you, saw, you heard it read there in verse 5 that these, um, these people uh, came with them and they had their wives and their children with them. And uh, Acts, the book of Acts doesn't talk a lot about uh, the, the family uh, dynamic of these uh, d- disciples and these early churches. But, but here we see it. Here we see uh, the importance of parents uh, raising their children in the instruction of the Lord, which involves a faith community, a, a local assembly of believers. And here we, we see that happening uh, in the city of Tyre. Well, well after uh, a stop on their way, uh, they reach um, Caesarea. Look at it in verse, 20, uh, verse 7. And when they had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Teleme uh, and greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we departed from, uh, departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four daughters who, uh, unmarried daughters, who prophesied. So once they get to uh, Caesarea, they meet up with Philip, who we, uh, who's here is called uh, Philip the Evangelist, as opposed to Philip the Apostle. Uh, Philip was one of the original seven uh, deacons, if you will, in chapter 6. Um, interesting for us to think about, this was before Paul was converted, when um, Philip became a, a deacon. Um, What's interesting to think about is the meeting that this would have been between Paul and Philip. Uh, the interesting reason is that 20 years before this, again, Paul's persecution of Stephen, Stephen and Philip were associates. And so it was Paul's persecution of Philip's associates that forced Philip to flee 
to where he's at now. It forced Philip out. It scattered disciples. It sent the, the gospel into the Samaritans. And uh, we remember chapter 8 where uh, Philip encounters the Ethiopian eunuch and the, the baptism that takes place there. So that might have been an interesting meeting for Philip and Paul to have a discussion. We don't know what that was like, but we can only imagine. Uh, Philip was not the only uh, past connection that Paul found in Caesarea. Look at it in verse 10. While they were staying many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. How Agabus, 15 years earlier, back in chapter 11, prophesied of a worldwide famine which prompted the church in Antioch to send Barnabas and Saul, or Paul, with relief from the church or for the church in Judea. So now Agabus is, is back. He comes uh, to Caesarea and he prophesies, this time concerning Paul. His announcement was done with, with an object lesson, right? With Paul's own belt. And we see something similar back in 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, verse 29, where uh, Ahijah tears Rehoboam's cloak. Uh, we see other kind of visual or object uh, prophecies in Isaiah 20 and Ezekiel chapter 4. But what Agabus was doing was, was making plain or making visible uh, what Paul already knew. Uh, Paul already knew that uh, imprisonments and affliction had a, uh, were, were going to uh, be involved in what happened. We saw that in chapter 20. Uh, this serves, though, as the second warning. If, if earlier in verse 4, uh, when they were in, uh, in Tyre, uh, that was a warning, we could say. And now here, Agabus is saying, this is what's going to happen. And the friends react, as most friends would react. Look at verse 12. And when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Again, the pronoun we tells us that Luke is involved in this urging. Luke himself and the other disciples in Caesarea urged Paul not to go. Uh, Paul's friends unwittingly, uh, certainly were not intending to, to make this difficult, but they were heaping pressure on Paul and making it harder for Paul to follow God's will. Uh, one commentator says that these friends were doing uh, three, three things. He summarizes it in three, three ways. He says they were demonstrating the all too common inclination of being quick to know God's will for someone else. Maybe you've experienced that. Maybe you've done that. Um, where you think you know what God's will is for someone else. Well, here these friends were, were basically doing that to Paul. Don't go. Uh, Paul had believed God was telling him to. He was compelled by the Spirit. And here his friends are saying, don't go. Also, the friends were trying to make God's will conform to their preconceptions. So, they believed certain things. And so how could God's will be X if we believe this? So we want Paul to be with us. We think safety and health are important. We don't want anyone to die. So why would Paul go up and be, uh, suffer uh, harm, even death? 
thirdly, the friends were demonstrating that their spiritual focus was more horizontal than vertical. They were more concerned about their relationship with Paul than Paul doing what God wanted him to do. They were more concerned about themselves than the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world. We, we, are, we are definitely in danger of this often, aren't we? Where we see it on, on our own level. We see it from our perspective. Sometimes we say perspective is reality. Sometimes we, that's the only way we can see things. Unless God gives us eyes to see something greater. And in the, the pages of Scripture, we understand that God is up to something far greater than we, than we know. So it is here that these, these disciples show to us what it's like when we get our eyes off of the vertical and only on the horizontal. As we think about decisions, as we think about life, as we even think about our present moment, we might have a, a perspective horizontally that we think is X, Y, or Z. But God is looking at this thing far, far differently. May God give us eyes to see. But Paul knew better. And we find out that Paul was ready. Look at verse 13. Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 13 has been called Paul's Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus had experienced the pressures of his disciples. Jesus knew that the coming affliction and still he went. Last week we looked at Luke chapter 9. It said that Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so too Paul had set his face towards Jerusalem. Paul must have felt pressure. You remember back to chapter 9 when Ananias comes and he heals Paul. And he tells Paul that, that he's going to suffer many things. So for years Paul's known this sense of of coming suffering that he would uh, experience future persecution. Uh, we saw last week this, this farewell that was uh, really uh, wrenching, this tearing apart of this, these relationships. Um, we saw already in this passage that the, the tugging of uh, this love of, of new friendships entire. We saw this dramatic prophecy about what was to come. And now here in verse 12, everybody, Paul's team, Paul's company, even his, his, his mate Luke, his beloved friend is, is in on it, urging him not to go. But Paul was undeterred. Remember back to chapter 20 when he says, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. I know what's coming except I know also that, that the Holy Spirit wants me to testify. I don't count my life as anything or dear to myself, but that I may finish my course in the ministry that, is, that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. See, Paul knew God's will. He knew that's what God wanted him to do. So he was trusting God to do it. And he was not concerned about pleasing men. Verse 13 also shows us that, that Paul um, shows both tenderness and toughness in Paul. That we see tenderness in he, when he says this, this weeping and breaking my heart. Right? There, there's a bit of tenderness there. Uh, another translation says, trying to weaken my resolution. What, what are you doing trying to, to break me, trying to um, uh, weaken me? The pressures weighed on Paul, clearly. He recognized that. 
one of the reasons may have been because he loved these people. He loved his friends. He loved these people who had been traveling with him and serving with him. But he loved Jesus more. Therefore, he was willing to go. And you need to know that sometimes following Jesus is going to look, look like foolishness to those around you. Even those who are close to you, even Christians who might not understand what God is calling you into. You need to expect that. That weight can be hard, but Paul shows us that there's a, a way of, of, of expressing our tenderness to that pressure, but also our toughness. Look at it. He says, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, even to die. Paul's saying, I, I know this is coming. I'm already committed to this. I'm not only committed to this in word, I'm committed to it in deed. Now there have been those who've come before him. Think of Peter, who had, who had verbalized to Jesus, I'll die for you, Jesus. And then hours later, deny him. Now we know that by grace, he was restored. and Peter went on to live a very faithful life. But here, what Paul says, he goes on to do. Paul counted the cost of discipleship. He died to himself and he was willing to suffer in order to follow God's will. British missionary C.T. Studd, missionary from the turn of the 20th century, says this, said this, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Now, Paul's friends looked at it and said, man, don't, 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 don't die. <laughs> don't suffer. Why would you do that? You don't have to do that. If Jesus died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him, even suffering, even death. In fact, it is because of the work of Jesus that we surrender it all. It's because of what Jesus has done that we are willing to give. Paul says this later to, to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that if one has died for all, then all have died. Then verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised again. Paul was committed. He counted the cost. He was ready to go. He was motivated by the Spirit, constrained by the Spirit. And then at the end of verse 13, it says that he's doing it. Why? For the name of the Lord Jesus. Not for his own name, for the name of the Lord Jesus. Why would he suffer? Why would he go? Why would he be willing to die? Because of what Jesus has done for us. That is, that he died the death that we deserved so that we could live the life that we could never live on our own. Only in him. Well, Paul's friends ultimately recognized this unshakable commitment to his ministry, to his course, and they concede. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. It sounds like Jesus' words, right? Not my will, but yours be done. Verse 15, after these days, <clears throat> We got ready, they packed up, and went to, up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh, the uh, of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Verse 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So Paul and company uh, travel. Uh, to Jerusalem. And with his company comes uh, some of the disciples from 
Caesarea. This is about a 65-mile trip up to uh, Jerusalem. And as they get there, we find that, verse 17, they're welcomed by the brothers, which is good news. And then they lodge with it with an early disciple, which means he was a long-standing disciple. He may be one of the, the foundational members uh, of the, the church there in uh, Jerusalem. Um, we've throughout this passage, and you, we've noted it a couple times, and maybe you've heard it, uh, there's this principle that the Christian life is not a solo endeavor. Following uh, God's will for you does not mean following God's will by yourself. Uh, clearly, we can see here it is good, it is a good thing to have friends who love you and who pray for you and who walk with you and who are for you, who are not uh, pressuring you in unhealthy ways, who recognize God's will in your life, recognize uh, what God is doing, and stand with you in seasons of trial and in suffering. As we conclude, Paul seemed to clearly know what his, uh, what his ministry was, what the will of God was for his life, and he was committed to doing it. And I wonder if you have that same clarity about what God's will is for you. And if you do know it, are you doing it? Are you willing to follow him? And we might add here, God's will isn't always what you and I want. Uh, sometimes we want certain things and it's just not what God has willed for us. We might want what someone else has. We might want someone else's life. We might think they have it better than, than, than I have it. That's not God's will for you. But maybe you're, you're not sure. Maybe you don't know what God's will is for you. Well, maybe you can consider uh, these four counsels. Uh, here they are. The first one is the counsel of God's word. Uh, are you regularly spending time in God's word? Uh, if we're ever going to know what God's will for us individually is, we must know first what God's revealed will is in the Bible. That involves knowing the Bible. It involves reading the Bible. The question then is, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to do what God has revealed? Are you willing to do what God has called you to? Secondly, the counsel of God's Spirit. Are you walking in the Spirit? Are you praying in the Spirit? John Stott says of, of walking in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit is deliberately to walk along the path according to the line which the Holy Spirit lays down. The third counsel is the counsel of your own conscience. Now, not all consciences can be trusted. But as Luther pointed out, as we read earlier, a conscience that is captive to the word of God, that conscience, to go against that conscience is neither right nor safe. If you know what God's will is, count the cost and do it. The fourth counsel is others. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 14 says, In an abundance of counselors there is safety. However, we must seek good and godly counselors, godly advisors. Uh, maybe you too, like Paul, have experienced the pressures of people in your life who are calling you back 
from what God has called you to. Listen, not every uh, would-be advisor is a good advisor. You can think of plenty of examples in the Bible of that. One that jumps out for me is, 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 is Job. Right? Job's friends, quote-unquote, who come to be his comforters to explain to him why the things that are happening are happening. Not so good. Not so good at counseling there. So who are you listening to? Do they not only have your best interest at heart, but, but more importantly, do they have the heart of God? Do they understand who God is and what God is up to in this world? So when these counsels are taken together, it can often lead to understanding God's will for us. One commentator uh, says this as we end. Following Jesus is costly, but not following Jesus is more costly. Paul seemed to understand this. Luther seemed to understand this. That the cost of discipleship might be great, humanly speaking. It might be great, temporarily speaking. Yet the cost of not following, the cost of not obeying is greater Still, Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. May God help us to follow Jesus no matter the cost. Let's pray. Father, would you help us? God, we recognize that the cost of following you, uh, that there is a cost to following you. That coming to Christ does not mean our life is without difficulty. What it means is that you're with us in it. What it means is that we don't walk the path alone. What it means is that we're accomplishing something far greater than ourselves. What it means is that our, our life matters not just in this life, but in the life to come as we follow your will. So God, would you help us to know what you want us to do, to be willing to do it by grace. And we need your help. God, as Paul needed your help, as he needed that, that compelling of the Spirit, the constraining of the love of Christ, God, would those things as well motivate, constrain us that we may live today for the name of the Lord Jesus. Would you help us to do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.